<sighs> I saved the bulletin and I lost the pen. That's kind of how my end of year is going. How's yours? Ready for it to be over with? Ready to start a fresh new year? Think it's going to be different? Hmm, hedging your bets there. Okay. Okay. So we just heard uh, Helena read a, a passage that uh, talked about tents, and in a literal moment, I started thinking about how much I hate living in tents. Um, and so I was just curious, how many people really enjoy being in a tent? All right, I'd like to draw your attention to my lovely wife, Karen, who has her hand up. How many of us would prefer not to be in a tent? Okay, we're roughly evenly divided, which I suppose I should have expected. Um, yeah, I'm not a fan of tent living. I've got a sketchy back to begin with. Insects really, really like me, uh, and so that tends to be a disincentive. And one of the things I've noticed is there always seems to be some kind of campsite drama, whether mine or a nearby one, when I'm in a tent. And some people seem to be able to just focus out of that, and I'm fully engaged in whatever foolishness is going on, wishing it would be over. So, not a tent guy. But here we are with a tent passage, and so we, we are going to look at it because God has a tent in the encampment of the Israelites, or next to it, sort of. Uh, whether a tent is my favorite place or not, it deserves uh, some mention. One of the things I like about this passage is it introduces the basis for one of the very few solid handoffs of leadership in the Hebrew Scriptures. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that it's like, you know, bad leader, bad leader, bad leader, pretty good leader, bad leader, bad pretty good leader, bad, 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 bad. Lots more bad than good leaders. And this is one of the rare, rare cases where there's a good leader, Moses, and he's followed by a good leader, Joshua. And we're not going to get to the, how that transition happens at all, worry not. Um, but I think this passage and then a few others that we'll look at more briefly kind of point to why that transition works, why it's a positive thing, why it's relatively unique. Okay, the other thing that I need to tell you before we kind of commence going through this by way of context is both Moses and Joshua are flawed people. These aren't, you know, Superman characters. They're maybe more like Iron Man characters. They, their flaws are not hidden by Scripture. They're exposed, whether Moses and Joshua would have liked that or not. Uh, and so we can see what kind of people they were in full, not an idealized version of them. Uh, this passage isn't about that. But I want you to have that background that these are flawed people and we know it. But I don't want you to take that and write them off because these guys are superheroes. I'm not kidding. These guys are about as good as it gets. So we've got to look at them and say they're flawed people, but they're real people. And they're incredibly godly, God-following people who do some 
not-so-good things. Hopefully, we can look at this little passage and some other slices of their lives and see how it might apply uh, to our lives and uh, go from there. But first, uh, I'm a little scattered. Let, Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for your word, which has been read And I ask that you would be opening it to us, uh, not just through my words, but through the work of your Holy Spirit. I pray where I am going to come off as confused that you will clarify. I ask that where there's something that you really specifically want to say to someone, that you will accomplish that this morning. I ask that we would give you glory, that you've preserved your word for us, that it's alive, and that it has a function for us if we'll just pick it up and understand it and pursue it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, I'm going to hop back into these few verses again and just add a few comments. Uh, Now, Moses used to take a tent, starts verse 7, and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. So, background, people of Israel have fled from Egypt. They were enslaved there. Things weren't good there. And with God's plan, God's power, God's presence, they have made it this far And he has gone with them. With this passage, we see that there's a specific place that God resides. Uh, And the thing I think we need to remember is that God's holiness, his perfection, his uh, unwillingness to be in the presence of wrongdoing uh, requires that this special place be outside the camp. It's near the camp. God is accessible. He's invited the people to inquire of him, but it's outside the camp. God comes to the tent of meeting, but it's set apart from the rest of the camp. Verse 8, and whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. This would be hilarious if we did this to Pastor Tim uh, when he arrived to work in the morning. You know, just everybody stood up and watched him go. Um, It would be hilarious briefly, but that sign of respect isn't something that's really natural to us, right? We don't really, that's, unless you're serving in some sort of force that has that kind of discipline, we don't kind of do this. But they did. So, There goes Moses to the tent of meeting. This is big stuff. He's going on our behalf. He's the one who hears from God. So, yay, we're going to stand outside our tents respectfully. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped each at the entrance to their tent. So, God is communicating his presence by this cloud. Hey, he's at the tent because Moses has gone down there. Now, we know that he was leading them out of Egypt. He was this cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. 
they had a continuous reminder of God's leadership and his presence and the fact that he was there showing them where to go and what to do. This sounds pretty reassuring to me. So the people are, are aware of his presence. They're showing respect to their leader. They're worshiping the God who comes to the tent nearby. And the reality is that for us, this is a really alien picture of worship. On the one hand, you get the, the benefit of you actually see the presence of God or a symbol of it. God's presence is where the pillar is, right? So where that is, I can be confident that God's there. Sam Harris's brains would explode if this were a thing that were in effect today because he'd be so shocked and astonished. But there's a limitation that goes along with it because where is that cloud going? It's always going to that tent, which means that it's never coming to my tent. It never goes to your tent. God has provided a place of access, but it's not where I am. It's over there. And so there's a distance in this scenario that it's a little, I don't know, it's disappointing to a New Testament familiar reader. Let's go on to verse 11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. All right, I have to get this joke out of the way. It was one of the, like, four that my father told. I'm sure some of you have heard it. There are two men in the Bible who didn't have parents. One was Adam, because God created him, and the other was Joshua, because he was the son of Nun. Yes, and so the sin is passed down from generation to generation. I've inflicted it on you. You can take it to somebody uh, and give them pain as well. Thanks, Dad. Uh, if we look at Moses for a moment, Moses isn't God's equal. This is the ancient Near East. This is a culture in which when Moses is going to the tent of meeting, we all stand. We worship God the cloud over the, the tent of meeting. It's kind of a formal hierarchical structure, right? Moses is not God's equal. So as an ancient Near Easterner, he should probably on it be, be on his face. Forget the fact that it's God, which generally when people encounter God or his angels, on, on your face is where you end up, like it or not. At the very least, I'd expect downcast eyes. I would not expect friends talking over the pub table. And yet, that is how God is addressing this man. God speaks to Moses as a friend. The God of the universe speaks to Moses. And this is where Moses being flawed comes in. Moses is a murderer. Moses' rebellion has meant that he's not actually going to enter the land that this whole group of people are supposed to be traveling to. So he's a flawed man. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that Moses' relationship with God, God's friendship with Moses, is based upon Moses' perfection. 
That's not the deal that's on offer here. What's happened is that God's great grace has made this interaction possible. Moses has a friend in God, not because Moses is adequate for God's friendship, but because God loves him anyway. The second thing is that Moses isn't the only one in the tent. He's not the only one who encounters God there. So Joshua, Moses' aid, was there. When Moses leaves the tent, furthermore, who's still there? Joshua. Isn't that interesting? Moses has business to take care of. He's got a family. He's got, you know, I don't know, squabbles to, to solve. He's off to the next thing. And still at the tent of meeting, the place of God's presence is this younger man, Joshua. And I think it's important that we recognize that the reason that Joshua experiences these kinds of God's presence is because Moses invited him there. Moses took him there. He's there because of Moses. Moses involves him. When, when Moses leaves the tent, Joshua remains behind. So who is this guy who remains behind? Who is Joshua? You may remember him from the song that says, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jer No? Okay, I got a few nods. You know, Sunday school is no longer something we all share in common, and that's fine. The only thing I want to tell you about the rest of that is the walls came tumbling down. Okay. But before that happens, we've got Joshua who's on this trip with the rest of the Israelites under Moses' leadership, under God's power and authority. And he's had some interesting experiences. Earlier in this book of Exodus, he appeared, and he was the general in charge of Israel's forces. So the Amalekites attacked, and Joshua leads the army. Exodus 17, 9 through 13 tells us, I'm just going to read this to you. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men. Go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow, I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning, the Amalekites. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. We've got a collegiate national championship football game that's going to be coming up soon, and I think it would be amazing to see a coach with his hands up, and as long as his hands are up, his team is winning. And then his arms get tired because he's a doughy old coach, even older than me, and, he, he's, he's lo and his team starts losing, and the assistant coaches run over and boost his hands up in the air, and they're winning again. This tangible God is providing the result, and you can see it in real time. Whoo, interesting. Joshua has already experienced this kind of God intervening in things. Israel's been through a bunch of stuff. They went through a sea. 
in order to escape from Egypt. And then the force from Egypt was drowned behind them. Okay, that's pretty cool, God's intervention. There's been provision of food. There's been all kinds of things that are good. Here, he leads his forces to victory, and he's acutely aware that it wasn't him who made the victory. Now, he still had to lead his troops. They still had to fight. He still conquered with the sword, but the victory is God's. God isn't letting anybody be confused about who it is. Is it Moses' magic hands? No. Is it the cool staff? No. It's God's intervention, and he allowed them to see. When Joshua next appears in Exodus, he's accompanying Moses away from the camp toward the mountain where Moses is going to receive the tablets that God has made inscribed with the Ten Commandments. So, Exodus 24, 13 through 14, then Moses sent out with Joshua on his, uh, his aid, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. Anybody know how this ends? Good, bad? Okay, I got one thumb down. All right. And maybe something in the back where it's too dark for me to see. Here's the thing. While Moses and Joshua are away, Aaron, who's supposed to be the grown-up in the situation, is asked, hey, we want to make a calf, or we want to worship a God in a, you know, um, yeah, he makes a calf. He makes an idol for the people of Israel while God is giving Moses tablets that say, don't worship anybody else and don't make any graven images. I'm not sure how much worse it could go. So, as they're coming down, now we don't know that Joshua went where Moses went. We think he didn't. Scripture doesn't say that Joshua was there. Scripture kind of makes Joshua blend into the background. You kind of get the feeling that despite the fact that he's a general and he's going to be a future leader, that he's an observer in a lot of ways. So he's not a participant in the dialogue. We just read from Exodus 24, and I'm going to read now from Exodus 32. So a few chapters of stuff happens, and now they're back on their way down. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Well, Joshua's not entirely wrong. Bad, 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 bad scene. So Moses and Joshua have been spending time on the mountain of God. The unimaginable happens while they're gone. God's people freed from slavery, camp near the base of the mountain where God's presence is. While he's talking with Moses, they're worshiping an idol. Good job, guys. And the reason that I bring any of this up, are you wondering? Is that the one Israelite who isn't part of this mess, besides Moses, is the one that Moses took into the presence of God. 
So there's a thing that we see in this scenario that Joshua is living a life of service to God because Moses involves him in it. There's a thing that's happening where Moses is not just leading the people, he's also leading an individual into deeper relationship with God. And there's something really special about that. The picture of discipleship that I really want us to think about for a moment. So imperfect Moses has a relationship with God. They're friends. And although Moses is the leader of all these people, who are standing outside their tents as he walks by, this one, Joshua, gets to share this part of Moses' life. Now Moses gets to hear the words of God directly, and apparently so does Joshua. Now, there's no cloud that comes down over this sanctuary. Uh, when Pastor Tim steps in the building, thankfully we don't all, all rise and a cloud doesn't come down. We're not having that experience at all. At the same time, we do get to hear the words of God. And I lost the pen again. We get to hear the words of God every time this is read, every time this is explained, Every time you and I sit down and talk about it, we're hearing the words of God. We get to see that word take life when we and other people engage with it, see how it's relevant to our lives, and then attempt to follow it. There's this spiritual life that begins to emerge, and it takes us up the mountain and out of this mess down at the base where we're all confused about how to worship and what to worship and what to spend our time on and what's really important. But the trouble is that even though we have the Bible and we know that this is God's primary means of revelation to us, and it's also the thing by which we get to test anything else that we think might be a revelation from God. Just as the tent of meeting was the place of inquiry, we have scripture. But most people don't read the Bible and just go, oh, well, this, it's obvious what this means, not only in its context, but for me. Do you? In my experience, people read this and have more questions than application to start with. Some of the things that we read can be difficult or confusing or hard to apply. And that's one of the reasons that we look for discipleship relationships where we can explain the word to one another, where we can share failings and victories, where we can encourage each other, build each other up, remind each other of who God is and perhaps equally importantly, to remind us of who we are in Christ. And I just want to, I want to highlight that last thing slightly. Because the last thing that you're naturally going to see and understand is who you are in Christ. What you and I tend to do is to listen to ourselves with ears of flesh. With eyes of flesh, we see ourselves. And depending on whether it's something we're sensitive about, and so we paint a rosier picture of ourselves than we really have in reality, or maybe we feel condemnation and shame, and so we 
we see a much messier, more unredeemable mess than perhaps really exists. And what somebody walking with us allows us to do is hear what somebody else is seeing. Here's how I'm seeing Christ living in you. Here's how I'm seeing you submitting that thing that I know you've been struggling with to God, and it sounds like you're experiencing victory here. One of the things that uh, I've loved in the about 10 years that I've known Tim is that we've been able to come to difficult passages and ask each other questions, whether it's about the meaning, whether it's about the relevance of the context, whether it's about how best to apply it or how not to apply it. One of the things I love about talking with my wife about scripture and our lives is she's a way more diligent investigator and applier of scripture to her life than I am. Isn't that sad? And at the same time, it's the most incredibly encouraging thing because there she is spurring me on. So because we have this relationship, different me and different people, I get to go over failings and successes. I get to go over what's difficult and what's easy for the moment. The beautiful thing about all of that is as you step up the mountain, the rumble of the battle below begins to fade away. And you see more clearly what's really true because you're seeing with the eyes that God gives with the ones that you started with. It's not about hanging out together. Moses and Joshua may well have spent time in each other's tents. Scripture doesn't tell us about that. Where they hung out together was in the presence of God. And I think there's something instructive about that. Now, perhaps you have a false picture of relationship with God that you have held in your past or that you hang on to now, that God is out there, he talks to some hotshot religious types, um, but he's far, far away from you. Your tent feels as far away in the camp from God's tent as it's possible to be. And so my question to you is, is a pretty simple one. Do you imagine that whatever you feel like you've thought and said and done, that that can invalidate God's love for you? God's affection for you? God's pursuit of you? Does it preclude a relationship with God? So look right at me. Don't insist that God interact with you on the basis that you choose. Don't set up rules that he has to follow in order to relate to you. He's God. You and I get to relate to him on the basis that he sets out in front of us. He's ready, he's willing, he's able to deal with the wreckage when we're down in the rumble at the base of the mountain. But we've got to go to him. We can't sate ourselves with, you know, golden calves or whatever it is that, that we do. And the beauty of the situation is we don't have to wonder where the tent is because God has blown all of that system up in Christ. The book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, verses 19 through 22 says, 
Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the most holy place, it's not in the tent of meeting, it's in the tabernacle, it's in the, the uh, temple when it comes. This is a place that God's presence dwells and we can't be there. The priests can't be there. One person can be there and they tie a rope around his legs so that if he's struck dead by God, he can be pulled out, his body can be pulled out. That's how holy God is. But we can have confidence to enter that most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain. That curtain separated that holy place from the rest of us. And that living way opened, this passage says, is his body, Jesus' body. Since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. So do you sincerely want a relationship with God? It's available to you because King Jesus lived the life you should have. He died the death you should have. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He sits with God the Father. Jesus is the one who can say, it's okay. Mike can be in your presence because of my work, not because he's awesome. And I'm really grateful for that. No matter how long you've drawn near to God, this picture of Moses inviting Joshua to experience God is one that I want you to be able to visualize. Life will not just naturally take us on this journey into God's presence. That's not where gravity, where inertia take us. We end up down the hill in the, the raving camp of the Israelites. That's what naturally happens. And it happens as well at the end of Joshua's life. So I said that this handoff from Moses to Joshua was a good one. It, it's not sustained. Uh, Judges 2, 8 through 10 says this, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance in the hill country of Ephraim. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And at any time, we are really a generation away from forgetting everything. We don't just pass this on passively. It has to be passed on actively. Another generation grew up that didn't know God or what he had done. So there's no guarantee of a smooth transition from one person to another, let alone a whole generation to another whole generation. And that's why we so highly value intentional discipleship at Church of the Valley. So I set up a survey that a number of you have responded to, and I want to thank you for that. And I asked the following questions. I'm, I'm going to give you some answers to these questions that were given, um, just, just a sampling, a smattering. Um, but I want you to know what kinds of questions were asked. What is your personal highlight of 2018 at Church of the Valley? What have you seen at Church of the Valley in 2018 that encouraged you? Who at Church of the Valley have you seen grow in 2018? 
what did you see? And what are you looking forward to in 2019 at Church of the Valley? And I'm going to focus on the 2018 answers, but I want to say one thing about that third question. Who at Church of the Valley have you seen grow in 2018? If that's a question that's really hard for you to answer, you might want to self-assess and say, how well do I know anybody at Church of the Valley? How much am I engaging with anybody at Church of the Valley? How real am I allowing myself to be with other people here? And if the answer is not that much, I'd say the easiest thing to do is next week and the following week, there's going to be sign-ups, maybe there's some this week, for community groups. Sign up for a community group. And then be Joshua faithful in attending. If it doesn't feel great the first week, keep trying. If it doesn't feel great by the end of the group, try another group next time. You hear what I'm saying? Unless we're exposed to other people's lives, we're never going to engage with them. But there were sets of things that I want to relate to each other that I kept hearing in answers, and I'm going to give you a, a, a few. The first was biblical foundations this year in Church of the Valley. Uh, so let me just read a few. I feel so blessed by the community groups meeting weekly. It's almost like I set that one up. Sharing the Bible, understanding it more deeply, and getting to know our new friends. Another person said, honesty and biblical teaching without forgetting that we are humans saved by grace alone. Young adults being more open and learning what it means to think biblically about marriage. I have seen my kids grow in their knowledge of the Bible, and I have seen their faith grow in huge ways. So this biblical foundations is an essential part of the kind of growth that we're looking for, especially in discipleship relationships, but all through what Church of the Valley does. We're trying to have things happen where we're going to hear from God, and Scripture is where that happens. Second thing is living out faith in community. Someone said, I'm always encouraged by a community that continually points each other to Jesus and people who genuinely care. Another says, seeing people live out their walk in Christ right in front of my eyes, really loving and caring for others. A third says, people of all ages and backgrounds loving God. And finally, people are the same in and outside of church. Christ is the center of all gatherings whether they were put on by COV directly or not. Well, may it be so. That's certainly what we aspire to, is not to be compartmentalized so that when I'm with church people or when I'm doing a church function, I'm one guy, and when I'm in some other context, I'm another guy. We want to break those things down. And discipleship's a great place for exposing those things to the light and having somebody say, hey, how's that going? A third aspect that we saw in the results, responses to the survey was deepening faith. I have seen a new light and faith in my husband, one woman wrote, that I have never seen before. He is so into it. He wants to do more, learn more, see more of Jesus. Someone else said, young adults excited about Jesus and the gospel. 
Another person said, God has been reminding me constantly in 2018 that my identity is not in the ministry that I do, as far as my own effectiveness or lack thereof, but it is in the ministry of what God is doing through me, sanctifying me, wooing me to his love. You hear what that person's saying? They're describing Moses on the hill with the arms up, acknowledging God's sovereignty over what happens, but also over identity. Who I am is defined by God. A husband says, I saw my wife ask questions and gain a better understanding on how Jesus wants us to live our life and how to grow our family. Beautiful. All right. Third, or fourth thing, last thing, is uh, some people mentioned discipleship. Here are some things that were said. A growing group of people in one-on-one discipleship relationships. Just observing what was going on, seeing that that was happening, being encouraged by it. Another person said, I'm really encouraged by the direction we're going. I appreciate that COV has a high standard of leadership that's not about being perfect, but having character, integrity, and transparency which are areas that convicted me over this past year. And one final response, I see so many examples of people who are taking discipleship seriously, and as a result, growing in understanding and humility and affection for God. So all of these things are things that went on in 2018. I'm excited about that. We've got a new year just knocking on our door at the moment, though. And I would like to see all those things become more and more characteristic of who we are, what we're about, and what we do, what we choose to do, and what we choose not to do. So discipleship relationships, I think, are a significant enough part of that that it's our intention over the next few weeks to go through a training that's specifically designed around discipleship. It's called Compelled to Replicate. And next Sunday, we'll start that as our our Sunday morning series uh, once Tim and the rest of the Rileys are back from Fullerton where they are today. Um, It's going to be a contrast with a lot of my experience of discipleship. And uh, if uh, Jordan and Helena would come up, I just want to tell you about my experience, I I went to a church, I went there for a while, and I was approached by a man about 15 years older than I was, who said, hey, would you be interested in doing some one-on-one discipleship? I said, sure. Um, I really enjoyed our time together. What was interesting to me is that he pulled out the binder And we went through the binder. And the binder covered a bunch of really good stuff. There was stuff about marriage and family. There was stuff about finances and use of money. There was stuff about serving in the church and gifts. There was a lot of different things. We hit some theology. More importantly, we had meaningful conversations about what was going on in our lives, what we were struggling with. And the problem was that at some point we ended the binder, we were done. And that was the end for me. It was the end of our time meeting together. 
nobody else that I ever talked to wanted to go through a binder. And so it, it was a non-replicating experience. And that's one of the reasons that we want to keep going back to the tent of meeting and hearing straight from God. And so discipleship is going to be something that's centered around Scripture, about reading it and understanding it, applying it, holding each other accountable, understanding that there is actually something here for me and for you, and that we can speak into each other's lives if we're willing to be transparent enough to let people know where things are going well, but also where they're not. And so that's, that's our desire for this uh, starting next week with Compelled to Replicate. And so I want to I just ask you, as we go into that series, to be thinking about, am I in something that really is a Moses to Joshua kind of relationship? Whether you're Moses or whether you're Joshua. To ask yourself whether that's something that maybe you're hungry for. And if so, is there somebody that you would like to walk through life with you for a season? And as we go through the series, then that'll be a question that you get to answer in more fullness. But if you start taking it seriously now, you may find that there's something waiting for you that God's prepared, intending for you to experience him in a different, different way.